You're listening to Beyond Bones, a podcast by the Houston Museum of Natural Science. I'm your host, Chris Wells. We're all about looking beyond the bones, beyond the artifacts, beyond the physical remains that are housed in our exhibit to tell the stories of triumph and tribulation uh, behind some of the objects on display in our collection and some of them that aren't on display in our collection. The moon is coming to the Houston Museum of Natural Science. This month in our Glacelle Hall, we will be having a huge sculpture of the moon. We're talking 23 feet in diameter with all the geographical features of the moon printed on it. It will literally be like somebody, some godlike being, plucked the moon from the sky and put it, inserted it, into our museum. It's going to be amazing. And so in honor of the coming of the moon and in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, we're going to be talking with two specialists today about um, the history of the Apollo missions, about moon exploration, about the future of lunar exploration, and maybe about the future of colonizing the moon and maybe eventually Mars. It's going to be a really cool conversation. Today I am here with Dr. Carolyn Sumners, who is the Vice President of Astronomy here at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. How are you today? Hello, good to be here. <laughs> and also Patricia Reif, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Rice University. How are you today? Just great, thanks. So today we're going to be talking about the Apollo 11 moon landing, which is arguably a seminal moment in human history. And we're going to be talking about how it affected you guys who are intimately involved in astronomy, of course, because that's what your careers have been, and also maybe what it means to the rest of the world. Um, I'd like to open up this little conversation by asking you, like, what were you doing on the day of the moon landing? I was floating down the Gila River in Arizona. It turned out that I was working in the summer at Kitt Peak National Observatory. It was the summer of my junior year in college. And uh, learning how much I loved teaching astronomy and how little I was wanted to do real, real research. It was kind of an exciting summer of a lot of different kind of things I got to do. But we were all out on the river, and we knew it was going to happen. And so we all watched it. And the interesting thing was all of the scientists who were, you know, our mentors were all worried. They were afraid the Apollo would sink. They had no idea how thick the regolith is, how, how deep the spacecraft would go in, and they designed little feet for it. But if the feet aren't big enough, the, the, the uh, uh, lander would land and continue. And so it was one of the exciting moments for them was just to see it on the ground, just saying, wow, those, those feet. You know, and they would they'd zoom in on the feet, and wow, those feet are really working. <laughs> and, and so it, it was exciting. That, that was, the, you know, that we've gone to another place, another world. I think at the same time, it's more exciting now to think about it in some ways because then it was just, yeah, yeah, we said we were going to do that, and look how fast we did it. And we got it done, and we landed, and we're going to land some more. And it was just kind of part of a flow of our exploration of the solar system. Little did we know that it was almost not a seminal moment, but almost an anachronism. It happened kind of out of time. We're not, we didn't keep doing it. And we didn't know that at the time. We thought it was just the way it was going to be. See, that that is kind of a fascinating thought. Like, at the time, it was neat, but you thought, all right, it's just a tiny step. We're moving on to bigger things, you know, and that that was the thought. But, of course, in the end, it actually ended up being the step we took. And we haven't gone a whole lot further, at least as far as, like, humans, inter, you know, on another planet or another surface. 
Or even living on the moon. Yeah, even living on the moon. We should be living there by now, right? <laughs> but uh, Dr. Reif, what were you doing on that day? Well, it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, and I was over at my boyfriend's house <laughs> in in, uh, in Tulsa with his parents and his brother, and and uh, I was not among amongst a bunch of scientists. It was a bunch of people who were business people and finance people. And, and yet, uh, the excitement was palpable among even non-scientists. And that was what was so exciting. Everybody was, you know, glued to the TV set and was hoping to make sure that that, that, that image came through because there was an issue. Uh, if it weren't for the, uh, the Parkes telescope in Australia, we wouldn't have gotten live images from, from the first step on the moon. So... <laughs> Uh, it was it was something that was very frightening uh, and yet very stirring, and it it electrified people, not just the scientists, but the general population as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Actually, here I collected this speech right here, and I think I might read it real quick because it's super interesting. Because we're on the subject of kind of how scary the moon landing was, okay? And enough people are afraid that uh, President Nixon actually had a speech prepared to give in case uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were not able to get off the moon, because that was a real fear. I mean, you were mentioning how people thought the the, spa the lunar uh, pod spod thing would actually just sink into the surface. Um, so here, let me give the speech real quick, all right? So it goes, Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind and their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared to send two of her sons to the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. And it just goes on to to basically talk about their huge achievement. It ends with, for every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come, will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. And essentially the speech is just saying like, yeah, so there are these two guys on the moon right now <laughs> and they're alive now, but they're, they're going to die because they're stranded on like the ultimate desert island. And it's a terrifying thought, you know. Well, I think that thought goes for, the Mar for Mars now. As well, you know, as well, of course, for the moon. But we want to put a more permanent structure. We want to put a space station on the, around the moon. So what we talk about, what we're going to do in the future, we're going to have protection in the sense that it would be some, maybe some way to get you out, and maybe a smaller, a, a larger co um, colony type environment to be in. But the people going to Mars, that letter could be written again for them, because they are going to be very far away and very unable to be uh, rescued if something really terrible happened. So, and Apollo 13 was a perfect example of that as well. I mean, that could have ended much worse than it did. Uh, they were out on their way to the moon when the explosion happened. They had to go to the lunar module as a as a as a lifeboat, uh, and and they ended up with too much carbon dioxide, and and they had to use you know duct tape and uh, good old engineering to 
to to make that scrubber work that was designed for the command module to make it work in the lunar module. And so that was part of what inspired me to continue on a, a career understanding space was the fact that it is dangerous. And yet we can, as humans, make the changes, make the make the corrections to, to save ourselves uh, when the unthinkable happens. And, uh, you know, praise God, they made it back safely. <laughs> yeah. And, and it changed my career. So that's fascinating because, you know, you were you were there, you were at Mission Control, right? Could you tell me a little bit about your career, you know, progressing through that period? Well, I, I actually did not come to Rice University till after I graduated from college. So that was a couple of years later when I came to Rice. Uh, and they had just put an experiment on the moon on Apollo 14. Uh, but Rice had had experiments on Apollo 11, 12, 13 that didn't make it. Uh, 14 and 15. Uh, and so after I arrived in, in 1972, then I was down at Mission Control for many of the uh, many of the events that happened on the moon, including both the takeoffs of the moon from Apollo 15, 16, and 17. And that was just awesome <laughs> to see that limb burst from the the surface and head head to space um, so we were we were there looking at our data when uh, the uh, the s4b hit impact hit and kicked up a bunch of dust is that a, a meteor impact no it, it was a it was a, um, a second stage rocket <sighs> that that came with them to the moon <laughs> it, <laughs> it gave them the final boost to the moon and so you know once they landed then this s4b also just crash landed into the moon and it kicked up a bunch of dust and one of the things that we looked at was how much dust did the s4b kick up when it when it landed because we knew its mass and we knew its velocity. So once you could measure the dust, my advisor's advisor who came to to Rice in March, uh, he uh, had an experiment on 13 and 14, and they told him to make a dust cover for his instrument because they were afraid that once the instruments were put out on the lunar surface and the and the limb blew, uh, you know, took off, it would kick up so much dust it would clog the instruments. So they had them design a, a, a separate dust cover that could be uh, jettisoned after the limb took off. And so the dust settled down. So he said, well, you know, who's, who's doing your dust detector experiment? And they said, well, you know, we don't have a dust detector experiment. He said, you've got to be kidding. We don't know whether this limb is going to sink in the dust or not. You know, we don't know how cohesive this dust is. You've got to have a dust detector. And he said, well, no, it would cost millions. And it would cost, more importantly, it would cost, you know, over two kilograms. And it would cost the time for the astronaut to set it out. And on Apollo 11, there's not a lot of time that they have on the lunar surface. So he went uh, on an airplane and a cocktail napkin. He designed a, a dust detector that was, you know, just a couple hundred grams and was attached to the side of something else so it wouldn't require any, uh, any astronaut time to deploy and so that he could, in fact, measure the dust environment of the moon. And what was very, very interesting, after Apollo 11 took off, there was so much dust kicked up that that package actually overheated and had to be shut down in 30 days. So the remaining ones were <laughs> deployed a little farther away from the limb so it wouldn't they wouldn't get 
get, get blasted by dust. Wow. Well, and, and that's so amazing because, you know, you're dealing with such an alien environment. It's like you really don't know what to expect, you know, in any way. Alien, but in its own way, safe. I, I think the dust is fascinating. I still, with uh, students, give them a sample of moon, du- moon simulant, which is like moon dust and earth dust. And this moon stuff has never been weathered. There's no weathering on the moon. There's no weather. And so you're looking at material that's very sticky. It's, it's like keep crushing glass till you haven't, can't crush it anymore. It's like little shards. And it really, yeah, it catches on to everything. And uh, Alan Bean got enough from the patch they gave him from his suit, which he crushed up because it, it had moon dust on it, in it. And he got enough to put on all, in all of his paintings until he died. Just a little bit, teeny bit of it into the paint. And it illustrates that, it, that this dust is just everywhere. And that's one of the big problems that if you look at the words of, like, Gene Cernan especially said something about it, that the dust is dangerous stuff, and we really haven't figured out exactly what we're going to do about it. And, of course, there's going to be dust on Mars, too. I mean, dust is what you interact with first, and we and brooms don't move it. How do, you, how do we get it away? We don't have air to push it. What happens to the dust? It's not weathered. And, like, we designed some lunar, um, a moon truck. And our final version of the moon truck, this is in a future simulation we use in our expedition center, we put the spacesuits on the back of the truck so they climbed into it, into them, took off and then clipped them back on. They never brought those spacesuits inside because of the dust. You can't get it into your equipment. You don't want to get into your 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 water. You don't want to drink shards of glass. I mean, they're just the solution anywhere along. The dust tried to be a much bigger problem. I can remember telling Kit two things that, that struck me, besides what Pat made me think of, <laughs> was the... Uh, we did a launch. Uh, the, the, we showed the moon rise, the earth rise. And the earth rise, the earth rise, I remember more in many ways seeing that than even seeing Apollo landing because people on earth had never seen the earth alone. We never realized the earth was so very finite and so very alone. And the first earth, the first earth day happened after Apollo 8 when we got the first image of the earth above the barren moon. And so how dramatic the earth is in the sky. And that that's something that we hadn't thought of before, and maybe had it's had a maybe that's the greatest uh, um, effect of Apollo, is that we saw ourselves much more alone and much more special than we had before. That's fascinating, and we saw the boundaries of this world. All of a sudden, the world became a finite place. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a place. And you know, a few century a century or two earlier, we thought the moon we didn't even know the moon was a place till Galileo showed us the craters. Uh, and so it's, it's a dramatic thing for, as, as we expand what we think of life. I can remember, though, teaching kids in the fall of 1970, and it, all of my great fourth graders, and I just told them they'll go to the moon. I, you know, we, we created panoramas in the planetarium and what it would be like, but there was no question that they would have the option of going to the moon. And then, you know, I decided, well, maybe after a few 10 years or so, your children will go to the moon. <laughs> and now it's, well, maybe your grandchildren will go to the moon. And, and it, it's really, a, it, my planetarium program, and my, what I say about it is the, illustrate have how much we changed our ability to predict the future of human spaceflight. And we found that human spaceflight was so much harder. We thought humans could adapt to anything. Well, the problem is they over-adapt. And so we really weren't prepared at all for, for all the things that would go wrong to, a, to the human body in space. 
and the lessons of the International Space Station and the space shuttle have taught us a lot of that about what's going to happen to humans over time when you change their environment dramatically like you do when you leave the Earth behind. Hmm. That makes sense. I mean, because we've sent, you know, now we've sent machines beyond our solar system. But I imagine sending people, it's a totally different story. I think the, 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 the biggest thing that we worry about is radiation uh, to humans. We here on Earth are protected from energetic particles by our magnetic field and are protected from the energetic light by our atmosphere. The energetic light hits our upper atmosphere and ionizes it and gives us our nice ionosphere, but it stops it from coming down and, and hitting us on Earth. Uh, on the other hand, when you're sitting on the surface of the moon, you're getting bombarded with both the particles and light from the sun and the particles and light from the galaxy. The particles from the sun are pretty episodic. You get a big solar flare and it can be very, very dangerous, even fatal to Apollo astronauts. Uh, but it's kind of episodic and you can shelter from it. On the other hand, the galactic cosmic rays are there day and night. And it's just like being in a chest x-ray all the, all the rest of your life. You know? oh. And so, again, you need to think about how you can protect yourself, how you can sleep you know, in a cave or underground. Because these particles are so energetic, they penetrate the sides of, of, of your spaceship. So that really makes it... When one of the reasons we are looking for faster routes to get to Mars and back is so that we don't have to spend that six months going and six months coming back in a in a spaceship that's not well protected from from space radiation. So, are, so are we capable of getting there? It's just a matter of like the safety of people once we're there. We haven't. There's a lot we haven't figured out yet. I can remember. I remember the flare patrols that people were doing in 1916. Eight and sixty-nine, while I was still in Tennessee, uh, because we had to be sure if a flare went off that we didn't have astronauts leaving at that time, because we knew what Pat was talking about—that it would be so very dangerous. And then we had a well, we first put up our telescope on the roof, and we've now taken it down because the parking lot's in the way. We're working on maybe by next year or so having a, a telescope on the roof, on the parking garage roof. But that's an aside. We had this huge sunspot. I mean, a sunspot group, just lots and lots of them, 1972, the summer, direct halfway between Apollo 16 and Apollo 17. Had it hit with either of those two missions actually on the moon or going toward the moon's even worse, the astronauts would be dead. And that's just a dramatic thing that we didn't, weren't supposed to say. Yeah. <laughs> no. You couldn't it's say a, it either. <laughs> it, it, it happened to me because we saw it in our instrument. We, our instrument was designed for much less energetic particles, but these solar particles were just going straight through the instrument and causing it to light up as a background that ended up being a thousand times stronger than any real signal. And I remember my, my advisor calculating how much aluminum was around our spacecraft. So, and ha I mean, our instrument and compared to the amount of aluminum that was around the, the Apollo limb and the, even the command module. And he said, and he did the calculations, and he showed it to me. He says, don't tell anybody they would have died. What? And he told me this at the time, and I was just going, but he said, don't tell anybody or they'll cancel the rest of the Apollo missions. And nobody knew that was going to happen. It's not something you can easily predict, I imagine. Like We were very lucky that, that, that it happened when it happened. And, and as I said, it was my first thought of, oh, dear, <laughs> we've got to deal with this. And we, we, did, we worked with uh, SIXA Institute 
at University of Houston, Arca Space Architects, designing a, a lunar habitat that made sense. And we buried it into the side of a crater and then figured out, it's, and that crater is where we can, it's at the South Pole, where we could mine water. And water's a great shield. So we not only buried it there, but we had the places they would go if a flare were detected at any level. We'd have some level of warning where they would be, and the water would be used for storage and as a shield. And we'd have the water because we could mine the moon for ice. And, of course, ice is more valuable than gold on the moon because there isn't any water. But that kind of brings up the question of, like, so why is it so important to go to the moon if it's such a dangerous, horrible place where ice is like gold, you know? Because it's a dangerous and horrible place where ice is like gold. <laughs> it's just, is it be, is that, does that mean that it just has a lot to teach us? It's like so different from what, or maybe it's the fact that we don't know what's there. So it's like we should see what's going on. My, my mom, who is, has passed, um, uh, cheerfully and cheerfully is an exclamation point, uh, that she would give all of the inheritance. I'm an only child. I'm going, oh, that she would give all of her inheritance away. No problem at all if she could get on, get, get on a rocket and actually ride around the moon. She didn't even have to land. She's happy just to see the backside, the far side. And that's when I went, oh. So I, I believe it's, it's tourism that's going <laughs> to make the moon make sense. And it's not that if you do it right and you do it well and you prepare for it well, uh, I, I think it can be made a safe enough destination that you won't, you're unlikely to suffer ill consequences from going. And I think that people are going to want to go to the moon because they want to be there and they want to see it and they want to uh, be in a habitat. And I think there's good science to be done there, uh, science that has to do with our reaction to lower gravity and that has to do with the environment beyond the Earth. The Earth collects a lot, makes a lot of our data a little harder to analyze than it needs to be. And, of course, the astronomers all want to be on the far side. Yeah, so you can get away not only from the light from the Earth, reflected from the Earth, including all of its infrared, uh, but also the radio noise. So if you wanted to be a, a radio astronomer and really listen to a very distant pulsar in a distant galaxy... Or maybe aliens. Or maybe aliens. <laughs> maybe aliens. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the, the, the far side of the moon is a, is a great place to be for that. So you can get away from the, the horrible radio noise that the, that the Earth is putting out, both natural and artificial. There's natural radio noise from the Earth, from the aurora. The actual northern lights put out uh, kilometric uh, radiation that, that we, we can measure from, from our space uh, Instrumentation. So, so those same atmospheric filters that protect us make it a little bit more difficult. Make to, us noisy. Yeah, make us noisy. <laughs> we, we, we had this big moon, um, and all of us were tasked. I mean, it's a big moon. It's a seven-meter moon that glows uh, right in the middle of the museum. It's, it's well worth seeing. And then we kind of all realized as we were plotting out the craters and knotting the labels and all that we can't even see the far side that only the Apollo astronauts have ever seen it. I mean, visually seen it. We can put a camera over there, big deal. But, you know, to see it. And that, and so you walk, as you walk around this big moon, for me, the most exciting thing is to walk over to the side by the elevators on the second floor, and you're looking at, at a moon that humans have never seen before and have never seen as well as you're seeing it right now, what it would look like if you could orbit the moon. And all the, it has, it doesn't have big seas. 
Well, it looks very different. It's just everybody has to come to the museum to see this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. It is pretty cool. Well, the the other thing about scientifically that's important about the moon is because there is no weathering there are some rocks on the moon that are 4.2 billion years old and there are or earth maybe rocks older. right because the moon was or, or most of the, the stuff the moon's composed of came from earth right well it came so, from an impact okay. of a proto-earth and an object that disappeared in the impact it was about the size of mars so it's but some of the meteorites we pick up even on earth are the inclusions of them predate the Earth, mm. predate the solar system. They date back to the uh, supernova explosion that created the pressure wave that created the solar system. So the moon's got a lot of old, old, old stuff, and it's all layered because, see, nothing, nothing changes. So you can figure out where all kind of things happen. It's the, muse- the moon is the museum of the solar system. So you go there to go to a museum, too. <laughs> Well, and so that and that's an interesting perspective. So really, the driving force is, uh, as I understand it, just the unobtainability of it. People want to go to the moon because they can't. Well, we we but, we we, we, uh-huh. do, we do a thing in the mm-hmm. planetarium show right now for the fourth graders, and we're going to put it actually in our it's it's actually in our new public show uh, to defy gravity. And what is most impressive is the low gravity field, the one sixth one sixth g. Take your weight right now. Everybody, everybody's listening. Divide by six. What you got left over is what you'd weigh on the moon. So if you weigh 90 pounds, you'd weigh 15, 120, 20. And you can say, well, that's wonderful. You won't, you'll look the same. This is not, this is not mass watchers here. You're, you're going to have the same mass, but you're going to feel a lot better about it. But you can, we have a, 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 a girl pole vaulting 120 feet. And in the planetarium show, you go, wow. I mean, you could, everybody could sink any basketball. You could lift six of your best friends at the same time. If you can lift one now, you could jump six times higher. And, and just the, 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 the freedom of having, as long as you keep your muscles, your earthbound muscles, if you let them, you know, uh, degrade over time, you'll lose some of the strength. But you'll land on the moon as an awfully much a uh, super person. Wow. There's another interesting thing that just came out of some of the new Chinese uh, measurements on the far side of the moon. They landed a little, a little rover type thing on the far side of the moon called Chang'e, and and what they discovered was that night on the far side is much much colder than night on the near side, and and they were all scratching their heads. And to me, I said that's completely mm-hmm. obvious. The reason is. When it's night on the near side, they are bathed by all the earth shine and including all the infrared that the earth is putting out, our greenhouse effect, okay, mm. <laughs> is bathing the near side of the moon during its night and keeping it from getting very cold. But if you're on the far side of the moon, okay, and you're at night, you're on the other side from the earth. And so the earth is not warming you at all. And so... You know, they thought it was so so strange, but it's just completely obvious. And you do, the Earth doesn't move in your sky. When right. you land on the moon, that's what you, and the Earth you've got is the Earth you'll always have at the same height, same location, exactly. Because within a little wobble, because the moon is, is locked, we don't see the far side, we always see the near side. Mm, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I, I've read that like in the early days. So like we're talking billions of years ago, right after the moon formed. 
was a lot closer. And so, like, the day was, like, three to five hours long, and there were, like, super tidal waves washing over the surface of, of land. It's pretty crazy. And in a way, it kind of goes to show how special our system is, because really the moon, the moon may be responsible for life evolving on Earth in the first place. So there, that's there's a think. whole theory or two about that that's yeah. not too far-fetched. Uh, because one of the things that, that, that restricts life, for example, did you know there's not a lot of life in the, the middle of the ocean? Most of the chlorophyll generation, most of the things that are living and growing are growing near the shorelines because only near the shorelines are they getting iron and other minerals washed from the surface. Uh, they did an experiment where they took a big boat out in the middle of the of the Pacific and started throwing at uh, throwing at uh, pieces of, uh, of of iron filings, and you could just see it green up behind the boat as it as it moved on. Um, so, where was I getting with that? Many, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but so the the fact that the that collision brought up a lot of heavy elements closer to the surface was really important. Otherwise, if you've just got a molten body that that cools slowly, all the heavy stuff sinks to the middle. So all the iron would be in the middle and there'd be none near the surface. We would just be sitting on a crust of silicon, like which is like yeah, like the moon, which would be very, very boring. Can you imagine how technology would would be if we didn't have any copper, any gold, any silver to have for wiring. Mm. <laughs> That's <know>? true. <laughs> we, we, we have this activity where we uh, have a whole bunch of earth rocks, you know, to analyze the rocks or the minerals. And then, oh, well, let's go in some moon rocks, too. There's only three. got to have a northersite and basalt and some brescia. That's it. You go to the moon, you go collecting, and you're going to get a northersite, some breccias and basalts, and that's it because you don't have these veins of copper and gold and whatever. And the rocks aren't that interesting because they haven't weathered. You don't have any agates and all the interesting things we just go out and pick up. Oh, like the sedimentary type stuff. And you don't have anything. Oh, you don't have any, any chalk or any limestone, no limestone at all. And, and nothing, I mean, the only carbon on the moon right now, really, to speak of, is the poo that astronauts left behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, everybody's trying to figure out what we're going to do with the poo, and and because it's going to be such interesting stuff. <laughs> it's going to be rare. It's going to be, it's going to be a big rare, deal. and yeah. how's it changed over time? And and it's 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 part of the astronaut that was left behind. That's interesting. I just imagine <laughs> this. I just I can you tell I teach children and poo is kind of an interesting topic. <laughs> It is kind of, I have this weird vision of just a parallel society developing on moon where they're trading ice and, and searching for, you know, lunar landing, fecal matter to power whatever they need. It's interesting. <laughs> well, the other mm -hmm. reason why when, when Carol and I have been designing this this moon colony, and we, we have a similar one on Mercury, uh, the, the, the tremendous reason why you want to do it near the poles is that you get a, a crater that the sun never gets into, and that's why it can collect ice is that it never sees the sun. And, and then the other thing you can do then, because you're near the pole of the moon, you can have a solar cell that projects up and rotates slowly once every 28 days because at the pole, the sun just goes around your horizon every month. It never rises or sets. 
like it would be if you were near the equator. But if you're near the pole, then you could have a, a solar panel up on a stick and follow the sun as it goes around your horizon every month. So you don't you don't have to have giant batteries to 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 soar energy. It's a problem on the moon if you land near the equator or just almost everywhere but the poles exactly. You've got two weeks of sunshine and two weeks of darkness, mm. and two weeks of darkness gets mighty cold even on the near side. <laughs> and uh, so it's very important. It was it was very oh wow that's where we're going to go. We found ice at the at the poles and we picked the South Pole because the crater's cool there, Shackleton. But it, it's go, we got to go, and Mercury same way. We're going to the poles of Mercury. If we go to Mercury, which I'm kind of in favor of, by the way, but probably the only one, uh, is you go to the poles, because on the poles you you can stick up and get some sunlight, and and you can have much more control over your environment. That's interesting. So, do y'all think that we're close at all to actually having people stay on the moon? Uh, this Gateway looks real. Gateway is our um, space station. That will be made in the. We've well, we've made one on what NASA is planning to do right now. Uh, we, you know, uh, uh, Tony made a marvelous uh, IS International Space Station. So now we've made a gateway, and we orbit the moon with it. So we show what it's going to look like, and it will not be continuously have inhabited, but it will have a lot of people there a lot of the time, and it's the gateway to the rest of the solar system. So we're talking about almost a permanent habitation in in an orbiting satellite. And then we're hearing more and more noise. Of course, it depends on who gets elected and what the national debt is and fill out in the blank, but of, of putting a colony down on the moon, putting people down there too. With But the space station in orbit about the moon is going to come first. Mm-hmm. And what would a moon colony do? Would they be all be researching or would it be like a tourist thing or... Oh, who knows? Both, both. Whatever they want. <laughs> whatever, whatever. We'll pay for it. Yeah. I think that's the trick. Is, is, and, but we find a lot of people like my mother who would, would pay to get to go to the moon. So I think that it would be the, the trip of a lifetime. And they've got a lot of people who are going to pay just to go up and spend five minutes in weightlessness and call themselves an astronaut and come back. And that's going to happen in a year or two. So it's, it's, it's for a human being stuck to the surface of the earth, this is the trip. That's true. All right, so um, we're almost out of time. Before, though, we go, I just want to, because it's been a lot of fun talking to you all, and you are both really interesting people and really knowledgeable people. And it's interesting because, you know, you all have been involved in astronomy for so long. Um, And I'd like to know what it was like, you know, being involved, you know, in that era, you know, particularly as women. Uh, How do you remember those years? Well, of, of course, there were very, very few women that were physicists back back in the day. And I remember when I went to a, my sophomore E&M class, and there was one other girl and I in the class, and the, the professor says before the first hour exam, he said, this test will separate the men from the boys. <laughs> and she and I looked at each other and went, uh, what do you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> it's like not applicable. <laughs> no, not applicable. So for the our final exam, we both wore really short skirts and me- me- stockings and high heels to make them clear that we weren't guys. Um, it, it's it's tougher to be a woman in a men's field, especially back then. It's less so now. Uh, I think things have uh, it's a lot easier for women to to follow the path that they uh, that they choose. Now, I was exceptionally lucky. Uh, my mother earned a medical degree in 1941 uh, when women just weren't 
getting medical degrees either. So there was just no question in my family that you could do whatever you you had the talent and the the energy to do. And I think ultimately the job you should have is the job where your talents match your passions. If your talents match your passions, then every day is not work. <laughs> it's fun. And 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 to me the excitement of knowing something that no one else had ever known before. I mean, that is just the biggest rush that I'm the first person to ever have known this, you know, and that actually even happened to me this this past spring. I, I, I looked at something in the data and went, wow, that's really cool. And, and but it is, it's, 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 there's still issues with, with culture uh, that a lot of women are feel like the the men are just hyper competitive and and they don't let them answer questions when they're in class. I mean, there's there's still uh, can be issues that that make that discourage women from going into uh, you know hard science. Uh, that said, biology now is way more than fifty percent women. <laughs> And computer science is 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 fifty percent women. So there's 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 a, a lot of women out there that are that are doing fantastic jobs. And and even medicine has gotten easier. Back back in the day when my mom was practicing medicine, you know, doctors had to do house calls at night and had to work every other weekend. Uh, now most doctors work in group practices, and so they share that weekend and. And evening work with you know with others, and it makes it a lot more accessible for, to to be able to raise a family and 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 still be a first class scientist. I well, I was one of two in my NM class as well, and uh, I also was in charge of the physics club of all nutty things, and never thought there was anything special about being a woman. I just never thought I couldn't do anything. It never occurred to me. Uh, for, when I headed off to graduate school, my father said, oh, you need to really be sure you can support yourself. <laughs> what a concept. And uh, Which was a very male concept, if you think about it. And why don't you go see if you can get a job first? And so I trotted down here and uh, ran in the, in the summer of 1970 to run be in the planetarium. And my boss, it fell, motorcycle fell on him, and suddenly I was running the planetarium. And there were no other women doing this, but that didn't seem to be a problem. And my boss here at the time, the president, uh, called me as token female. And I didn't bo- it didn't bother me either. I thought, oh, okay, sure, why not? And it, it was just, it, it, it seemed to be such a logical thing because my mother we, you know, I was going to be the best. There was no argument about this. We weren't going to debate this much. And so it, this all made sense, and it always has ever since. And I don't know, because I'm not competitive like Pat. I, I, had, I had a planetarium, <laughs> so I didn't have to worry about competing with a bunch of men for something. And this museum is very female-heavy. Uh, you know, it's much more rare to be a man in charge here than a, than a woman. Most of the museum is run by women. And... Uh, so I think that although our board is still and our president is male, but I think that that it, so I was in a different environment from Pat, and I just I, if I want to do something new, I just went out and figured out a way to do it and did it, and that's still been the case. So, but, but I see the girls, I see the girls that come through, and much more are the girls aware they can do science. They're doing science in the in the labs that I teach for the young kids. And these are uh, all kind of ethnicities, a lot of underprivileged kids, a lot of minority kids. The girls are very strong. 
and very eager and very much part of the entire experience, lab experience, and they're responding in the planetarium show. So I, I think STEM message is getting out. As far as girls go, we got there. They understand they can do whatever they want. And I'm hoping that some of them want to stay with teaching because it's, that's, as impo that's important too. And maybe some of the guys start, maybe some of the guys start realizing they can do a lot more. In fact, we're seeing more guys teaching in elementary school. And I think they have a huge thing, huge advantage for that as well. So I just believe over time, we're get, it's, that, this is all getting better. And when I came here, it just didn't, I just never thought it was a problem. It never occurred to me that I should be upset. And so I just kept doing stuff. We, we had at one point a, a separate space science department from a physics department. And our space science department was running 30% women, whereas the physics department was only running 10% women because the women thought of space as being exciting and accessible. And, yeah. and, and in fact, when you look at the astronauts uh, that are Rice graduates, you know, more than half of them are women. And, and, and Shannon Walker is still an astronaut and what got her undergraduate and master's and PhD from Rice. So we're real proud of, of Shannon. So the other, the other issue is when we go to Mars, uh, I think it was Elon Musk said that maybe the first Martians will be women because if you've got a six-month journey to get there, <laughs> you know, you need to be able to have people who work well together that don't, <laughs> that are able to cooperate with each other, you know, feel mere strength is not going to be the issue when you're in a space colony. The, 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 the problems in a space colony are the same problems that we have in Antarctica, which is how do you spend six, six months with, with somebody and not kill them? <laughs> you know? And women, uh, typically, and I, you know, I hate to, like all generalizations are completely false. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, no comment. But still, like definitely it should be the best of the best, period, right? No another all other qualifying factors. But um so but that it's good to hear, you know, because the thing is all the stuff you're saying is good because really we just need as many people as possible, no matter who you are. You know, if you're interested in sim science, you should get involved because, I mean, you know, this is where it's at. This is where the discoveries are being made. You know, this is where the exciting careers are. You know, it affects humanity. And it's just good to have knowledge like that. Um, so it's time to, uh, to end the show, unfortunately. But um, before we go, I do want to mention that, yes, we have all sorts of exciting planetarium shows. We have our expedition center where you can actually go and participate in a, um, in a uh, what's it called? Like a you can do a mission to the moon or you can go on a moon tour this summer. There you go. So you can participate in things like that. We do also have our giant moon sculpture, which is a wonder to behold. And also, I believe there are some things going on at Rice University uh, that could be interesting, right? We have many uh, speakers that uh, highlight the, uh, the Apollo missions because this summer, of course, is the 50th anniversary. Uh, we've had several already, and, and these are all archived. So if you go to our website, space.rice.edu slash Apollo, uh, you'll get links to all of some of the the best lectures that have happened and the ones that are coming up, and also some of the animations that we have jointly created uh, for Apollo are going to be uh, posted there. So uh, take a look and, and join our, uh, our our network of people excited about the, uh, the moon program. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode about moon exploration and its hopeful future. 
If you did like what you hear, be sure to uh, like and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choosing, and also leave a review. You know, we really want to hear what you think about the show um, and see what we can improve, or maybe that we are perfect and we don't need to improve anything. Either way, we want to hear that. Um, Also, uh, follow us on social media. We are on all the social medias. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.